What I find incredibly important in a leader is to be self-aware of what he is driven by and to also then make his value system transparent. Welcome to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Roebuck, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business and government, best-selling author and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shop of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our Perspectives from the Top community. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be. Today, our guest is a Swiss businessman who started his career in McKinsey, becoming a partner before moving into financial services with Swiss Bank Corporation, becoming CFO there. In a series of mergers and acquisitions, including merging SBC with Union Bank of Switzerland, UBS was created as a global bank in 2002, soon after which he became CEO at 44. Over the next two years, he oversaw the consolidation into one UBS and the growing impact of UBS on the sector, which is now a Harvard case study on creating an integrated organisation. In 2006, founded his Elia Foundation, focused on alleviating poverty around the world through entrepreneurial means, leaving UBS in 2007. He was also on the board of Partners Group, one of the largest private equity investors in the world from 2009 to 19, is on the board of Signum Bank, the first digital asset bank in the world, honorary chairman of IMD Business School and vice chairman of Zurich Opera, author of books on inclusive leadership and alleviating poverty via impact investing. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Peter Woofley to Perspectives from the Top. Peter, great to have you on Perspectives from the Top. Uh, just wanted to go into the way you've got to, to where you are now, because one of the things that we've found on Perspectives from the Top is that when people become successful somewhere in their past is a boss or a mentor who did things that truly inspired them guided them however you describe it was there somebody there in your past and and what did they do to help you get to where you are now well, thank you, Chris. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here and uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, well, I joined, uh, my first job was essentially working as a consultant with McKinsey. And if you work with McKinsey, you don't have one, you have literally hundreds of mentors, both within the company, uh, with every new assignment, you basically get a director, uh, you get a principal who is your boss, you get an engagement manager who directs you. Uh, and then obviously you have all the clients, I mean, the client teams. And so I couldn't pinpoint one of the role models. I, there were literally hundreds of people uh, that I took uh, kind of my clues on. Uh, and at the end, I think what, what I would recommend is just to have an open attitude and be open and, and watching uh, more senior people. I mean, what's the structural situation? If you're a McKinsey consultant, you're always about five to 10 years younger than the rest, right? Uh, so it was always <laughs> yes. called uh, the insecure overachiever, uh, and and obviously what that does is, uh, if you if you are open to it, uh, you have a lot of people you can learn from. Uh, so no, there was not a single individual. There was uh, hundreds of them, uh, and I uh, learned a lot from them during ten years as a consultant and then as a partner and a member of the Swiss office team uh, at McKinsey. And interestingly. You must have been inspired through the collegiate atmosphere that that created at, at McKinsey. And how did you find that? Did you try and replicate that sort of atmosphere in subsequent organizations that you worked in because it had, it had inspired you? 
Yes, absolutely. I think you're hitting the nail on the head because on the first day when I started at McKinsey, I learned this so-called obligation to dissent, uh, which meant that you're not only have a right uh, to voice your opinion, but if you're working on a client assignment and you really share, don't share the view of the senior partner, you are obliged to disagree. And I must say this lesson, uh, I applied obviously at McKinsey, there it's a duty, but it created a very, very deeply felt sense of partnership. Uh, and um, still today, the power of partnership for me is the number one, two and three leadership rule. I think unless you're able to work at eye level with other talented uh, and inspiring people, I think leadership will not happen. Uh, and that also inspired my philosophy of inclusive leadership, uh, which is more horizontally oriented than vertically, uh, which I do feel is the right way to lead uh, in a complicated global world uh, where you just need to harness a lot of different perspectives, talents, skills, backgrounds uh, in order to be successful. So yes, I essentially applied partnership principles everywhere and we have been together at UBS at the time, so you must remember some of it. <laughs> I remember much of it, Peter. So, uh, and and uh, quite frankly, uh, interestingly, uh, I felt that we can apply partnership principles in very large corporate organizations but also in very small, uh, more entrepreneurial organization. We can apply it in uh, non-profit, in my philanthropy, for example, uh, as well as in, in, in kind of commercial organization. At the end, it's just the way how people work together. And for me, it's still one of the conundrums uh, that it doesn't happen so frequently. Uh, I mean, it's in my view so obvious uh, that we need to partner among talented people uh, across the north and the south, across different philosophies, across different functions in an organization. And still, many bosses are incredibly hierarchical. I mean, you still have a lot of imperial CEO types uh, with three titles, chairman, CEO, president, right? Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I'm just totally convinced uh, that partnership is what at the end uh, helps you become an accomplished leader. And, and we'll dive into that power of partnership and the inclusive leadership thing as we go on. But one of the other things I wanted to explore that is somewhat unique to you and maybe one or two of our other guests is that, that because you're Swiss, you know, there are sometimes comparisons between business leadership and military leadership. Now, in most countries, leaders just cannot make that comparison unless they're in the military or they're in a commercial business. But of course, Switzerland, you have the the fun, the duty, the obligation, however you might describe it, to spend time in the military, in, in national service. Did you find that that experience in, in the military actually was of value to you in business as well? That's very interesting, Chris. And I must say, I have done a series of podcasts, but it's the first time I get this question. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, I have done uh, about a thousand days uh, in Swiss military. So I, I, I was an officer. I was uh, I ended my career as a captain and intelligence officer. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, the answer to your question is yes. I have learned a lot as a young guy, particularly as a lieutenant, being 22, being 23 years old, being in charge of 24 grown-ups, uh, mature people, having to kind of lead them, having to manage them under very adverse conditions. Um, when you're tired, when the, when, when, the, when the weather is bad, uh, when you are under time pressure, when you're stressed, when you get lots of pressure from your bosses. And I guess, in my view, what is very valuable about uh, military leadership education are three things. On one hand, and I think the, the most important is resilience. Uh, I think to have the discipline to work under stressful conditions, I think that's one. I think the second one is method. Uh, I think the military has very clear methods on how to operate, uh, how to uh, develop immediate measures, how to develop a time plan, how to form a decision. Uh, so methodology on, on leading, uh, I think, is a second 
very important point. And the third one, quite frankly, is crisis management. Uh, and it's very interesting. Uh, as you may know, I have been involved with IMD, which is a business school in Lausanne uh, for uh, over 25 years. Uh, I was chairman there for many years. Uh, and we have actually um, established a crisis leadership program uh, in the uh, executive MBA program uh, together with the Swiss Army. Uh, so the, the last week uh, of the kind of EMBA program was done uh, in a crisis management mode uh, in a bunker in Switzerland uh, where uh, Swiss Army officers challenged the team. And I must say, I've attended uh, in the middle of the night uh, together with the head of the Swiss Army uh, this session. It was hugely impactful. I almost uh, was shivering emotionally because it it was for me globalization at its best, right? You had a class of maybe uh, uh, 60. Uh, 60 students, they were coming from Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan, from Brazil. Uh, there were young ladies, there were older men, there were, I mean, a, a level of diversity you couldn't imagine. And they were all under the guidance of Swiss, experienced Swiss army officers were working on crisis scenarios, specifically on uh, the Geneva airport being hijacked by terrorists uh, and they had to work their way through it. Uh, and I must say that was hugely valuable. Uh, and 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 so uh, we felt that this this was actually something that the world can benefit when you can marry uh, a diverse group of leaders uh, with the military methodology i think to also show the limits i think where military leadership does not work is on content on analytics you know because uh, the swiss never since 1848 never had to fight the war uh, so at the end it's all theory uh, and, uh, and 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 I, th I guess i have seen examples where corporate um, uh, leadership systems with lots of swiss army guys were very disciplined but and very resilient but going in the wrong direction because they didn't do their analysis is right. Uh, and so I think one should not confuse method uh, uh, with, with, with content and with research. You, you have just reminded me of a most beautiful incident when I was teaching on a, an MBA program uh, over a weekend doing a similar sort of process where um, an ex young ex-military officer with the greatest inspirational confidence and direction managed to take his team in completely the wrong direction and they all followed him willingly right that's exactly what i meant <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it's absolutely true and and, and for, for our listeners i i need one to openly admit that peter and i worked together uh, i was at ubs for about five years during the creation of uh, of ubs as a, a as a global bank which is now a harvard case study and i i was also a a professional british army officer for about five years and it, it was interesting that from my perspective as a professional army officer Within the management of UBS, there was a visible difference in the things that you're talking about, Peter, between the Swiss leaders, the Swiss senior leaders, and those who were non-Swiss in terms of that basic method of getting stuff done, which you might, as an objective observer, you might find that interesting. I could just do a comparison between you Swiss guys and the American guys and say, yep, there is a visible difference that shows that the Swiss military system does make a difference. So linked to that, then, do you, do you see a, a direct link, therefore, between good leadership, inspired people, success, profitability and return on investment? Well, I guess that's one of the enigmas in the leadership research, right? I mean, when I when I started to research uh, leadership as a topic for my book, Inclusive Leadership, I tried to get some grips to this answer. And quite frankly, through, uh, I don't know, at the time, I think there were 70,000 books written about leadership. Uh, Probably I more think it's, now. it's completely non-conclusive. Uh, and, uh, you know, Phil Rose, Professor Phil Rosenzweig is a good friend of mine, professor at IMD. He wrote this book, The Halo Effect where he essentially uh, demonstrated with many cases that when a company is at its best in terms of performance uh, and in terms of its reputation and in terms of its kind of uh, uh, appreciation by all the stakeholders, then also the leaders are 
are supposed to be the best. Uh, and as soon as the company hit uh, the bottom, uh, then the same leaders who are actually doing exactly the same thing, day in, day out, they are immediately being the worst. Uh, and so <laughs> at the end, I think uh, it's, it's still very unclear, uh, A, what is really good leadership, uh, um, whether charismatic leadership is the right one, whether it's more the, the humble kind of uh, Collins type of level five leadership. <laughs> I think that very unclear what type of leadership in what situation and with what results. I mean, at the end, for me, I guess ethics is an important component. What I uh, find incredibly important in a leader is to be self-aware of what he is driven by and to also then make his value system transparent, particularly in a globalizing world uh, where we do have a whole range of philosophy and deeply ethical DNAs ranging from Confucius, which is more about kind of uh, respect uh, to kind of um, American libertarianism, which is about radical freedom uh, and then a whole series of values in between uh, with different religious influences. And, and so I think what is important for me is that a leader art articulates where he stands and what his level of responsibility is and how he kind of uh, applies this level of responsibility in accordance with his resources and with his capabilities and with his ambition. So for me, and, and that's why uh, I guess uh, an important chapter in my book, Inclusive Leadership, is about ethics. Uh, it's about uh, how to deal with freedom and how to take responsibility as a leader. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in the sense that there is that conundrum of what leadership is optimal in what situation, not only the situation in terms of the organization, but the situation in terms of the people, how they're feeling, what's happened before, where they want to go. One of the things that, that I think is clear is that, that there is evidence that Day-to-day -day action, there are certain day-to-day -day actions by leaders that will potentially maximize the effort of their people through the psychology, through the neuroscience, things like uh, developing them, asking for their ideas, showing you care, and that's that sort of thing. How that all then connects through a system which effectively must have a time lag and other filters into profitability and return on investment is, I think, exactly where the complication is. Uh, so I think it's a fascinating area. Certainly when I try and talk to leaders about what good leadership is, I tend to concentrate on, you know, there are certain things you can do. And what I found fascinating is over 10 years, I've asked leaders around the world what the best boss they ever had did on a day-to-day -day basis. And the list that comes out is absolutely consistent, irrespective of where in the world. And it's just simple things like I mentioned, asking for ideas, developing me. Honesty and integrity always come out as key. Trust is also uh, one of the top three. So it, it is, there's things that we know will make people give effort, but then as exactly as you say, how that has to be, how the leader has to do those things within the context of where they are and how that feeds through gets confusing. Linked to that and, and this power of partnership thing, which is interestingly what all of the things on that list reflect, an emotional partnership between the boss and that individual and team. So you, you've led UBS, uh, the global bank. Uh, you've seen corporate leadership over many years. And now through your foundation, you're, you're seeing, you're working with entrepreneurs and not-for-profits. So how does the dynamic of, of effective leadership vary between those? Or is a good leader a good leader wherever they are? And those, the sort of cross-cultural dynamics, how does that seem to affect leadership? Yes, I guess I would lean to the second of your implied answers uh, and, and 
exactly because of my experience in leadership positions at executive level, at board level, in large organizations, in small organizations, in nonprofits, in uh, for-profits. Uh, I guess I have come to distill uh, several generic uh, leadership uh, kind of lessons uh, that are were actually at the source of the book uh, on inclusive leadership uh, because I felt I needed to summarize it. And uh, at the beginning is, as I mentioned before, this power of partnership. And I couldn't agree more with you at the end. Uh, uh, people will recognize if you work with them, if you listen to them, if you respect them uh, for what they know, uh, if you uh, are sincere and build a trust-based relationship to accomplish things together. Uh, I think that's that's the first, that's the foundation. And I think there is no organization where uh, the, the single hero uh, will just do it all of himself. I think these type of organizations, in my view, are probably at the declining end in today's complicated and global world with multicultural influences. But I think then there is a second element. And the second element in my book is leaders should do real work. Uh, and obviously, uh, it depends on what kind of a person you are. Uh, but for uh, I remember when I came in being a Swiss bank corporation's youngest ever externally hired executive team member, and I became chief financial officer. Uh, and I was a consultant before. And you can imagine how these probably 150 uh, very smart, very elaborated accountants, tax specialists, legal specialists, uh, finance specialists at UBS, at Swiss Bank Corporation were kind of reacting when a consultant was kind of put above them who was had the tender age of 36 years. And I remember I had quite a lot of skeptics. Uh, and one of them was in the tax team. And we, at the time, we got the mandate from our group to look at a holding structure as an alternative to how we were organized. And I actually wrote pay the first draft paper myself and then put it to the tax people. Uh, and the tax people were hugely impressed because they said, never ever had a member of the executive team actually written something <laughs> of himself, right? He, he, they always kind of uh, were there and they, they bossed around, but, but actually doing real work. Uh, and obviously, it doesn't need to be writing. I happen to be uh, kind of reasonably experienced. I was a journalist during studies. I love writing. I have written three books uh, in my life, so I, I love writing. But I think what's important is that a leader gains the trust of his people by doing real work and not just kind of supervisory uh, kind of speeches that he hasn't written himself, uh, uh, kind of rah-rah events uh, not being substantiated. Uh, and so the, the, the leader has to be a professional in his area. Uh, and, and I think that was for me always very important to be a content leader, not every where, but at least in some areas where you were just respected for what you did in terms of real work. And that also goes, uh, I think, that goes back to the power of partnership thing that, 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 that you mentioned. And on that list of things that makes people truly respect their leader, it, it is one of the beautiful ones is show they cares, they care about me. And, and the amazing figure is that the research would suggest that a leader who shows they care about their people versus one that can't be bothered can potentially get up to 25% more effort. And, and you think it, it is that act of Making yourself one of the team, I think, the fact that the leader is not separate from the team, the leader is part of the team. It's about creating a we, not me culture, which interestingly then goes back to some degree to the military concept that we're all in this together. And, and, and I think that that's, that's really, really powerful. So you're now working to reduce poverty through entrepreneurship via via your foundation so can you can you tell us what you're doing and why this entrepreneur approach is in your view key to, to real success on the ground yes my wife and i created a lea foundation for ethics and globalization pretty much 15 years ago uh, and it was essentially uh, for for three major reasons one is that 
uh, I feel that the, the mega trend of our generation and probably the next to come is globalization. Uh, and there is no other so powerful uh, that has transformed uh, our world since about 30, 40 years. And globalization, as we by now all know, has basically positives and negatives. It uh, creates a lot of uh, wealth, uh, particularly for poor people, but it also leaves people behind. Uh, there are many people who don't have access. Uh, and so if you're born in Switzerland, if you are kind of among the fortunate uh, to do a career that I have done, uh, then it's obvious uh, that you are on the winning side of globalization. And so I felt uh, that it's in a way an ethical responsibility to share some of the gains from globalization with those who do not have access to globalization opportunities. That was the number one, the ethical imperative. The second one was uh, that uh, I have a passion for the topic. Uh, I studied in university as an economist uh, in development economics, and I've always wondered uh, why there is poverty and what you can do about it. And I think there is today a huge body of empirical research. I mean, two years ago, for the first time in the history of the Nobel Prize, the uh, Nobel Prize for Economists was awarded to two empirical poverty researchers. Uh, and so, and so uh, as an economist, I was always passionate in, in, in helping to overcome poverty, uh, which is the sustainable development goal of the UN number one, end poverty by 2030. And the third reason had to do with life planning. I mean, I was fortunate to become a CEO at 44 years. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously, if we take care of our body and soul, uh, we'll have some chance to be 90 or plus uh, in our life. And so the question was always, what do I do after the executive period? And so these were the three motivations uh, why we set up ELEA and why it's called Ethics and Globalization. So the idea is really to fight absolute poverty with entrepreneurial means uh, and how we do that we invest in young companies uh, in themes like agriculture like retail like employable skill building in countries like bolivia india zimbabwe kenya south africa philippines uh, and 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 we do this by investing in companies rather than in projects and i guess that comes to your question why is entrepreneurship uh, relevant. It's very simple. If you invest in a classical development project, you have an employed project leader and he will be the project leader as long he is employed. And the timeline of these projects typically are 12 months, 24 months, maybe three years, maybe four years. Uh, but when the project is basically completed, uh, then the project leader goes somewhere else. And a few years after the impact is not there anymore. Now, if this is a temporary task to, I don't know, build an infrastructure, build a, a building uh, or a power station or a road, then of course that's okay. But if the idea is to create a model to sustainably address poverty, for example, to create an institute that offers uh, employable skills to people so that they can uh, become employed and earn a living for themselves and their families, uh, or if you want to help uh, smallholder farmers to essentially increase their income, or if you want to uh, help uh, small shop owners to be more productive, then you need entrepreneurial business models. And an entrepreneur, the difference between a project leader and an entrepreneur is the entrepreneur thinks in decades and generations, uh, not in months and years. And therefore, the entrepreneurial approach for the kind of poverty alleviation that we do is just more sustainable. And when you think about how the really successful economies of this planet have become about, I mean, the Swiss or the American or the German, uh, I mean, they were not built through development projects. They were built through big entrepreneurial personalities building enterprises for ideally several generations. And that model is what we're trying to replicate. So we have today uh, roughly two dozens of ventures uh, in these three themes. We have an active team of about 24 people, uh, all professionals. Uh, we sit in boards uh, and we uh, make, we are an active investor during seven to 10 years, helping these companies growing from, I would say, the post-startup phase to an early growth phase. We want to be the first institutional investor in these companies and we want to be the last uh, philanthropic investor. Your, your point, your sort of historical point is interesting. If I 
reflect back on my economic history, if you look back, for example, at indeed the, the, the creation of the Industrial Revolution in UK that then spread around the world, all of those first movers were entrepreneurs who had an idea about something, be it cloth manufacture, be it steam engines, be it scientific, and the application of those ideas out into a into a business so the so the power of entrepreneurial thinking then creates energy to build and grow enterprises and the next part of the question i I actually i know what you're going to say but it would be useful for our listeners to to hear your responses do you think this could be used to um, energize larger organizations as well as the smaller organizations um you know what are what are the challenges of potentially utilizing entrepreneurial thinking in a larger organization to make it more effective absolutely and i guess there my experience as a board member of partners group for 10 years comes into play uh, because as you know uh, i spent my first the first uh, 22 23 years of my career when i was with mckinsey and when i was with swiss bank and then ubs i essentially spent in the large publicly listed corporate environment uh, And I must say, when I switched to adopting the private equity lenses and joining the board of partners group, where I spent uh, 10 years and where I was the head of the risk and audit committee first, and then I was several years uh, its chairman, uh, I saw kind of a different perspective on, on corporate leadership. And I saw how in many ways, current corporate governance in listed companies is stifling entrepreneurship. I mean, we see a lot of, we see a lot of what I would call governance correctness, uh, where boards of large global diversified conglomerates are more and more behaving according to codes of conduct uh, that have been established by stock exchanges, by regulators, by professors who basically share the same characteristics uh, that they actually never led a company uh, and that a lot of the principles and rules are about to uh, avoid risks, uh, about to implement uh, socially acceptable and correct mechanisms, but, but which when you really look at it, don't necessarily ensure that the company uh, stays course uh, and uh, works as an as a successful entrepreneurial entity and i i must say this is a bit of a worry that uh, particularly those large uh, corporations with a diversified shareholdings uh, where essentially uh, there is a combination of very few activists uh, with a sometimes more than questionable agenda uh, and the majority of passive funds etf pension funds uh, with no real industrial agenda in a way own the company uh, and you have board members who are more and more composed according to all types of diversity criteria uh, where competence uh, and skills uh, does not range at the top but somewhere in the middle of the criteria and where the CEO is in a way changing every four to six years and where you then wonder uh, where is the entrepreneurship in these companies and I think that's in a way one of the reasons why we see such a tremendous surge in private equity and we see such a decline in publicly listed companies uh, so I must say from comparing the experience within the corporate Uh, kind of uh, large global diversified publicly listed environment versus private equity. I think in many ways the private equity model is superior uh, because there is a very clear alignment between ownership and management. Uh, there is a very clear action orientation. There is a very clear entrepreneurial long-term agenda, which has to do with the industry, with the entrepreneurial opportunity, and which does not have to do with, with governance correctness. Uh, so uh, in my book, uh, this is something uh, to keep an eye on and, uh, uh, and, 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 and watch the situation. To, to some degree, I mean, the raison d'etre of a risk function is to minimize risk. Um, the problem is that if a risk function is completely successful at stamping out all risk, it has therefore effectively stamped out the opportunity. any activity 
any opportunity. So it's just, as, as, as you say, um, whilst it might make the governance look good, the organisation is inevitably going to fail because in due course, it's not going to be making any money, uh, which I think is a is to some degree self-obvious. But from what you're saying, many people have missed this somewhat obvious point. Yeah, I mean, in a way... I, I mean, the world moves in pendulums, as we all know, right? And when I started my career, uh, there, we actually grew up with the barbarians at the gate, with the RJR Nabisco, with the managements being all too powerful. And then we had this shareholder movement, which people today have forgotten that the shareholder movement was actually originating from institutional investors, from pension funds who said, you know, we are the owners of this company, not the all too powerful CEO and the management. Uh, that basically build corporate headquarters, use corporate jets, waste a lot of money for prestige things, right? Uh, and, and I think that's when I became CFO and that's why I wholeheartedly embraced the idea that uh, the ownership of a company is actually with the shareholders and not with the management. Uh, and then obviously we have seen all the excesses uh, that, we, that have been talked about a lot and I think then stakeholder capitalism became more, more fashionable. Uh, and while I completely understand why there needed to be a correction from a exact Saturated shareholder value thinking, which was becoming too greedy, too short term, uh, too much kind of uh, value money oriented as opposed to responsibility, societal re responsibility oriented. We really need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bath tube and to go into a stakeholder capitalism, which de facto challenges liberal capitalism at its very core. Because in a way, what it says is it's no longer the owner. There is no property. There is no private property ownership of companies. It's stakeholders. It's a combination of clients, uh, shareholders, employees, public, regulators, activists, NGOs. And quite frankly, there we are getting very close to a dangerously socialistic model of organizing the the economy. And I think that's where we are now. So that's why I obviously am the first to argue that companies should have a, a high degree of social responsibility. They should work uh, and, and use their resources and their mandates to fight climate change, to help alleviate poverty, uh, and to help m make progress on uh, you. Uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, but we need to make sure that we don't erode the ownership in the companies uh, as a core principle of liberal capitalism. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. On the on the entrepreneurial side of it, one of the things I do find interesting when I talk to organisations, leaders around the world, one of the questions I ask is. Just out of interest, how many of you in this room have either been an entrepreneur or worked for an organization that's had, say, less than 20 people in? And it's really interesting that some audiences in organizations where I feel that there is a buzz, there is a dynamic, a reasonable number of hands will go up. Whereas in other organizations, you can have 300 people in the room and not one hand will go up. And, and you think, so that's really interesting in terms of if there's 300 people in this organization who are all senior leaders and not one of them have, has had any experience of being an entrepreneur at all, how on earth can you engender any sense of seeking out proactively opportunity and just so listeners know, but Peter and I did some work on what we called entrepreneurial leadership at, at UBS, trying to encourage long-serving corporate leaders to start thinking more entrepreneurially and seek out opportunities. And what I found amazing in, in, in that period was that there were a group of people who had been long-serving corporate leaders, but when given the opportunity and told they had the opportunity to think entrepreneurially and were helped to do so, their change in mindset was quite fascinating. Yeah, I think you're quite right. And, and I think in that sense, I think what really 
is is in my book a, 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 a very encouraging perspective is that there is more and more competition between different ownership and governance model it's driven by on one hand i think in a way the revival of the good old family business uh, i mean i remember times when i when i worked at mckinsey at the time 15 20 years ago uh, the family business thinking was dead right i mean everybody said well these families uh, they're not professional enough uh, at the end uh, they will at some stage uh, IPO uh, their company. Uh, so I think at the time um, one felt, well, at the end, the end goal is to have a publicly listed company. I think what we've seen in the meantime is all the question marks uh, with governance correctness of the publicly listed company with a diversified shareholder base, uh, while at the same time we have seen a tremendous revival of family companies uh, that uh, also, quite frankly, uh, driven by, for example, Asian, uh, the importance of Asia, where family companies are the norm. Uh, and the other is private equity. I think we have seen private equity uh, becoming more mature, becoming more long-term, becoming more building rather than just financial engineering. Uh, and I think what all this creates is a, is a, is a tremendously healthy a competitive situation uh, for good outcomes. Uh, and uh, being a liberal at heart, I, I really love competition. I mean, I think, and particularly competition for ownership models and for governance uh, philosophies, I think is a very healthy competition. That the culture, the, the, the search for opportunity, I've worked with organizations that have been private equity owned and without doubt, there is a much more proactive search for opportunity in the management teams and in the whole organization where it's private equity owned, which, which, which goes, to, goes to your point. So sort of, sort of beginning to finish up, then what are your plans now to take your foundation forwards? Well, when we started 15 years ago, uh, I mean, we have been named a pioneer by a leading Swiss uh, newspaper, which made us proud. Uh, and it may, in a way, be have, have a, uh, some truth in it, because we started uh, to invest before the time uh, the expression kind of impact investing was coined. I mean, we, we created the foundation 2006, 2007 was the beginning of the impact investing trend. And to be honest, I mean, we called it initially entrepreneurial philanthropy uh, until at some stage we found out that what we're actually doing is impact investing. Uh, and when I started and I told my colleagues uh, what I was doing, they were very polite and they said, typically, uh, and what else do you do as a reaction? So uh, I, th I think it was still seen as being somewhat odd uh, for somebody with my background. And I must say this has completely changed. I mean, today, impact investing is at the forefront. Uh, it is mainstreaming very rapidly. Uh, many corporations are embracing it. Uh, and for me, still being involved in IMD, one of the highlights uh, is always when I uh, go together with the executive MBA students who are kind of seasoned corporate executives. Um, and before my, my last trip before the pandemic was actually to Peru, uh, a whole week for about a, a good 30 of executive MBA students who spent a whole week uh, on uh, our topic on philanthropic impact investing. And I must say here that the ELEA Foundation has donated a chair, uh, ELEA Chair for Social Innovation at IMD. Uh, and so this is part of the curriculum. And we had these executives uh, doing interviews with, with impact entrepreneurs, uh, creating investment proposals. And it was for me a huge eye opener how these kind of they were country managers from Nestle. They were kind of department heads from ABB. I mean, there were traditional corporate executives. Uh, the, the boss that this whole uh, impact investing world created was, was hugely rewarding. So in that sense, we see a lot of potential for us to, just to, to grow further. And I mean, sadly, COVID has uh, obviously uh, been incredibly sad for poor countries. So has pushed uh, poverty back. Uh, I mean, we've, we were before in 2019, uh, we were on a very good trajectory uh, to come close to reaching uh, the UN Sustainability Development Goal number one and poverty. I must say this has probably been uh, now held back for three to five years, depending on which statistics you, you believe in. And so uh, I think there continues to be a lot of work in fighting poverty and growing 
growing our organization in uh, also uh, looking for fields uh, in, in terms of investment topics. I mean, one of the topics we are very excited about are, are areas where you combine fighting poverty with actively fighting climate change. Uh, where, for example, with climate credit, CO2 credits, uh, carbon credits, uh, you can essentially help uh, poor farmers uh, to gain more income uh, and at the same time uh, to reduce their impact on the planet. Uh, so they're very interesting, innovative investment areas. And so I guess the path I see for ELEA is just to continue uh, to, to grow our, our investment footprint uh, to add maybe new selected teams to grow our team. We have now 25 professionals, possibly uh, to uh, become a more global organization beyond Switzerland. And I must say, I see uh, a lot of potential. I'm totally excited about uh, the whole momentum uh, between, uh, in a way, uh, refitting capitalism uh, to be more purposeful and to actually uh, help address the really big challenges that the world is facing, which is fighting poverty and fighting climate change. That, that's that's a brilliant objective to have. So, uh, f- finally, then, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners around just how to be, uh, uh, if they're a leader, how to be a better leader, and what are the things that perhaps people who aren't leaders should just think about in terms of how they can be more effective uh, in their jobs and organisations. Well, I think one is just to never never turn down opportunities to learn. Uh, I think that's for me would be number number one. Uh, I mean, I have never turned down any uh, kind of assignment, be it with McKinsey, be it with with UBS, to do new things, to learn new things, to to complement your profile. I think when you stop learning, then in a way, uh, you're you're capitulating. I think the the second is really about this whole partnership thing i mean not look vertically not look to your boss and to your subordinates but to look at uh, talented people at at eye level uh, uh, with a partnership approach uh, developing deep uh, empathetic trust-based relationships uh, again where you can learn on one hand but also inspire uh, others uh, and quite frankly the, the the last one that i tell uh, to every uh, student group when i'm asked to give these kind of speeches is never ever sacrifice family and friends to your job it's the worst thing you can do uh, and i've seen it over and over and over again that people were too passionate about their job, uh, workaholic, working 724. And I mean, I have experienced it when you lose your job from one day to another, uh, then you're back to family and friends. Uh, And when you are in such situations uh, and do not have this backbone of family and friends, then you are in real trouble, which can go on to life-threatening challenges. Uh, And so I really advise everybody to basically be diversified in how to use life energy. Uh, I hate the term uh, work-life balance because I think it is essentially a Marxistic term, uh, which in a way says there is work, which is anti-life, and then there is life. Uh, so that's not what I subscribe to, but what I really um, embrace is a balanced life. Uh, I think co- accomplished people need to have a balanced life. And the balanced life means you have to obviously have a professional angle where you work hard and where you deliver results, but you have to have a satisfied family life, uh, social life. Uh, you have to uh, satisfy uh, your 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 personal objectives, such as, for example, opera in my case. Uh, and that makes you a rounded personality. And it's very interesting. We have at ELEA, we have created a talent program a few years ago where we uh, hire young uh, bachelor and master degree people, 25 to 27 years old. And I always interview uh, the kind of finalists. Uh, We have a huge number of applications for this year's program. We had last year's program, we had 180 applicants. This year's uh, we uh, raised the bar. So they have to provide a kind of investment proposition uh, and so we got got it down to 52 applications and we hired three of them and they were terrific people i mean i'm really so proud of 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 our people that apply for these jobs and i always ask them what 
what makes you tick, uh, what you look for. And, and what they say is, I want to be challenged. I want to work hard. I want to be promoted. I want to learn. Uh, so I'm not one of those millennials who think about the next world trip and the next yoga lesson, uh, but I really am I'm ambitious. But I want to be in an environment of a team with accomplished personalities uh, that in a way are well balanced uh, and are not just about work. And I want to know why I come to work every day. I, I want to have a meaningful purpose. Uh, and so I think that's basically what I would convey uh, to upcoming leaders. Peter, that's that, that's a, a great answer. Uh, so how can, other than your excellent book, Inclusive Leadership, how can people learn more about your foundation uh, and, and what you do? Yeah, we have a website, which is uh, uh, elea.org. And uh, I've written another book, uh, actually during the pandemic, together with my colleague at uh, IMD, Professor Vanina Farber, who is the professor, ELEA professor for social innovation at IMD. Uh, and the book is called uh, The ELEA Way. Uh, uh, it's essentially describing our journey towards sustainable impact over the past 15 years, uh, where in detail we have to put put together what we did, what we learned from it, uh, and what would be lessons for uh, entrepreneurs, for investors, also for uh, researchers or just simply uh, intellectuals interested in the topic. And, and um, I've actually read Peter's, uh, Peter's book on that, and, and it is a really interesting insight into some of the really big challenges uh, that face this world, but actually we don't think about or do enough about. So that's that's another great read from Peter as well as inclusive leadership. Peter, thank you so much. Uh, that was really, really insightful, really amazing. And and to our listeners, you know, I think there are so many things you can have picked out from what Peter said, just from the practical leadership aspects to really thinking about how all organizations need to work in the future so thank you peter so much that was great thank you chris i enjoyed it well listeners there is so much there to think about and act on to be honest i think even i'm gonna have to go back and listen to peter's interview a couple of times you know, from simple actions such as building collegiate relationships at work to get things done to really significant questions about the structure of organisational ownership, which truly best meets the needs of the current world and its challenges around poverty and climate change. Certainly, Peter's key points at the end have real value. One, never turn down an opportunity to learn. Two, always working in partnership through trust-based relationships. Three, never sacrifice friends or family for your job. Four, make sure you have a meaningful purpose to your work. To be honest, if we all listening today did just those four things as of tomorrow, it would transform the lives of all of those around us and also make our organization significantly more effective. So have a think about how you can use some of Peter's ideas to help you get to where you want to be. And don't forget that in a week, I will give you a more in-depth view of the key takeaways from Peter, my insights, and three ideas for action in my reflections on the top. From my side, there are some really great ideas here also for me to pass on to my speaking and masterclass audiences. Now, if you've used any of the insights you've got from perspectives from the top and they've helped you, send me your success stories. I'd love to hear them. And don't forget to sign up on the website so you don't miss any of the future guests we have coming up over the next year. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your favourite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. So have a successful week. Use today's new learnings and actions. And remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.